the burning of St. Marie Church. It wasn't clear who the St. Marie Church once served. It was difficult to imagine past residents of the Ecuadorian village ever navigating the lush and mountainous terrain to attend. The church sat alone, built atop a small flat on the mountain, looming ominously over the village. And it was solitary. There were no bones of any other structures, no farms, no nearby community. It seemed to have just been artificially dropped into place. A lone, foreboding sentry sitting atop the plateau. Miguel had asked many locals about the history of the church, yet few knew anything about it. He recalled asking his abula if she had ever thought to make the trek up to the church. She responded no, in a very matter-of-fact way, calling the journey un camino en inguna pate, a road to nowhere. Even the eldest amongst the village knew little about it, just that it had watched over the town their entire lives, as well as their elders' lives. How the wooden structure had not rotted and fallen in on itself was miraculous. Due to its cryptic nature, an exact age could not be determined. A large cross adorned the facade of the building, propagating its theological affiliation. Occasionally, and seemingly only at midnight, the valley would echo with the ringing of the church bell. The occurrence was a strange one. It was seemingly unaffected by the whims of the wind. The bell simply tolled erratically. Typically, the bell would only sound off a lone, solitary ring. Though it varied, sometimes it was two or more. Miguel could recall a night in particular, which had the bell toll thirteen times. Once again, Miguel knew his elders were less than useful in determining the cause of the occurrence. The bell and the church itself were largely ignored by the inhabitants of the small hamlet. Yet, if there was anything to count on, it was teenagers doing teenager things. The church, due to its age and lack of upkeep, was condemned. This warning, of course, did not stop a group of inebriated teenagers from scaling the mountain and entering the church. The story wasn't exactly clear about how one of the kids broke their leg. Perhaps the truth was safeguarded by peer pressure or a pact of silence. All that mattered was that the boy needed to be airlifted off the mountain. A dangerous, and more importantly, costly endeavor. Soon after, the Ecuadorian Ministry of Labor dispatched an agent to assess the structure, who swiftly deemed it hazardous enough to either undergo a costly restoration or warrant demolition. The alcalde, which was the term for the municipality's leader, had the docket on his desk for no more than three minutes, as, once he seen the estimated price for materials and labor, proceeded to approve its destruction. Miguel worked for the local municipality, which was east of Cuenca, though much of his time was spent in the city. The more rural areas were less cared for. The alcalde's reasoning was that with less people, there was less maintenance and cleaning to be done. However, secretly, Miguel suspected that it was tourism that pushed the agenda. The older Miguel grew, the more he felt the world revolved solely around money and class. He had a disdain for those who disregarded the work he and his co-workers did to provide safety and cleanliness. Typically, wealthy or obnoxious people, sometimes both, were always so unabashed in their convictions of public service workers, seeing them as figurative bottom feeders, failures, and frauds. 
pulling up beside them in their luxury sports car with their children and unashamedly pointing, stating, This is who you will become if you fail. They speak as if their hands are not also filthy. Difference was that theirs were covered in blood, not dirt. The alcalde was one of those men. So, when Miguel learned of the decision to destroy the church, he was unsurprised. When Miguel looked upon the church, he saw a cryptic yet valuable heritage site. The alcalde likely just saw a lawsuit. If there was any silver lining to be found, it was that Miguel could finally unveil the mystery of the church. Perhaps it was the hush-hush attitude the hamlet had about it, or just never really having a reason to, but it had never crossed Miguel's mind to climb the mountain on a whim. He absolutely had the ability to, as he spent much of his youth in the Scouts del Ecuador, which had taught him a multitude of survival skills, such as orienteering and mountaineering. There was just something in the far reaches of his mind that told him not to do it. The morbid curiosity about the site still couldn't shake the dirty feeling he had about destroying such a relic. However, despite his abhorrence to those whose lives were exclusively monetarily motivated, he also needed a roof over his head and food in his stomach. Therefore, when he received a call the following Monday, as he was getting ready to leave, that he was instructed to stay home as work was coming to him, he complied. After receiving the call, Miguel hung up his keys and sat back on the cloth couch in his living room, facing the fan which had not stopped blowing since he set it up a few years ago. A humid and moist heat infiltrated his home, which made doing almost anything physical unpleasantly sweaty. He reached over the edge of his beige cloth sofa, opening the nightstand beside it, pulling out a black hardcover book. Reading was an activity he enjoyed. Unlike television, it produced no excess heat and required very little financial investment. Miguel only really watched the TV at night for that reason. And even that was a rarity, as due to the lack of cable, he could only watch passed-down VCRs most of which were plagued with image issues, with symptoms typically being skipping and freezing. The few that worked sufficiently he had seen so many times that the tape was beginning to wear. It was days like these that Miguel made a promise to himself, that by next year at this time, he would be sitting on a cool leather couch in an air-conditioned apartment in Cuenca. It took a few hours, and four or five calls from the foreman, Javier, for directions, to traverse the lush rolling green hills to find the hamlet nestled in the dense Ecuadorian jungle. Miguel was on the verge of sleep when he heard the sound of tires crackling over gravel outside. He arose from the couch, leaving behind a sweat-soaked imprint in the fabric, and moved to the sink. He let the faucet run cold and shifted his head appropriately so he could drink directly from it. An unused glass is a clean one, he thought, as he grabbed his canteen and let the water fill it to its brim. He let the water overflow onto his hand, enjoying the refreshing sensation running down his arm when a car horn sounded out, echoing through the compact house. One moment, he yelled back. He jogged over to his screen door, seeing three men waiting in a white truck outside. He pushed through the door feeling an intense increase in humidity as he did so. The truck was an old Toyota, whose cab had appeared to have been chopped directly in half, the back half now supporting a large metal canister, which had been covered with a red and green tarp. 
The side paneling was layered with a thin coat of dust. It sported two types of tires. The rear two were heavy set and rugged, adequately equipped to deal with mud. The front pair, on the other hand, were nearly bald and were clearly worn out. Miguel recognized the faces in the front seat to be his foreman, Javier, and another worker, Daniel. A third, unrecognizable face accompanied them from the back seat. When Miguel neared the vehicle, Daniel stepped out and pushed his seat forward, allowing for Miguel to sit in the back beside the stranger. Raul, he introduced himself as. Miguel did not recognize the face, but he did the name. You must be Mateo's boy, Miguel inquired. Mateo was a neighbor of Miguel's, an older man who had once lived in America. Alabama, Miguel believed. He had returned recently, however. A few days after arriving back to the village, he invited Miguel for tea. Miguel inquired as to why he chose to leave America. He responded rather cryptically, saying that one had a responsibility in life to begin and end in the same place. He explained that in a dream, a woman wearing a sleek white robe approached him, flanked by a large crowd of faceless people, took his hand in hers, and told him his time was soon, and he was to come home. Miguel brushed his answer off as a symptom of senility, and was relieved when he also revealed that his grandson, Raul, intended on coming down for the summer to gain work experience, and help a deteriorating Mateo with laborious tasks. Yeah, my grandfather is Mateo. Why do you ask? Raul responded. Ah, just an old friend. How's he doing? Miguel asked with a sympathetic smirk. Eh, he's old. Tough as rock, but old. Unfortunately, his mind is, de his mind is degenerating, I fear. He wakes me up in the middle of the night when that old church bell rings. Walks right up to the door and starts mumbling nonsense, Raul responded. Sorry to hear about that. Let me know if you ever need help with anything. I'm just down the road. Miguel then noticed Javier staring through the rearview mirror, waiting for their introductions to conclude. Where to? he asks. Miguel's directions lead them to a trailhead, which, despite its relatively non-existent use, had not yet been reclaimed by the jungle, as if it too conformed to the church's dubious command. A tarnished wooden sign was shallowly buried next to the trail's entrance. The black lettering was barely legible from the weathering over the years, though one could still manage to see the words, Keep Out, under the right light. The makeshift crew unpacked their supplies, taking into consideration encumbrance. The plan was for a controlled burn, which entailed a few mandatory supplies. Shovels and sand for barriers, a few fire extinguishers, and fuel were packed in large canvas rucksacks. The journey uphill would be burdensome, especially when the sun peaked at the midday. The brisk morning air was already beginning to heat up, the day in its preheating stage before baking at lunch. A silver lining could be found in the season. July in Ecuador was dry, or at least less humid than December, meaning there would be less bug, and more importantly mosquito, activity. Miguel and the men began the tedious trek forward, the altitude, inclining slope, and heat merged to hinder their efforts. Miguel stepped out onto a clearing overlooking his hamlet. 
He could still see the microscopic people moving around from building to building, going about their day without any idea of the ethereal spectator watching them from above. As Miguel observed the tiny figures, and the minute detail of their motion below, he could not help but draw parallels to an ant colony. He pondered if they too operated in such a matter, with purpose and precision, completely aware of their destination and role within the bustling community. After a brief lunch that ended with all the men still hungry, due to the equally famished budget for the expedition, courtesy of the alcalde, they continued upward. The shrubbery that flanked the trail brushed against their arms and legs, and a few brief stints on the trail lurched perilously close to the cliff's edge. This further emboldened the previously hesitant Miguel on if he was doing the right thing. The chances of some kids accidentally taking the quick way down was not unlikely if given enough time, and enough alcohol. The sooner this place was lost to time, the better. The men were relieved as the foliage began to thin. However, the feeling of relief was a brief one, as when the men moved closer, a foreboding trepidation permeated the air around them, as if they were entering the presence of something that preferred to be left concealed. Miguel attempted to dissuade the jitters in his stomach with humor. Maybe shouldn't have been an ominously cliché church then, he thought, though he felt little reprieve from the unease that blew through the air, rustling the leaves around them. Miguel's discomfort peaked suddenly. He could feel the church's presence before he could see it. The posse emerged onto the plateau, and the church's stalwart frame came into view. It was larger than Miguel expected, though his lens was always from an ant's perspective, situated in the valley town. It would have been a similar size to the village schoolhouse. It had a fairly typical A-frame roof with a circular tower attached to the front, which housed the bell. The closer they got to the building, the more meager it became. It became increasingly obvious that the wooden planks that made up the building were waterlogged, and the smell of rotting wood amplified with each step. The men approached the building, setting their supplies down a few feet away, before Javier spoke. Don't tell me you don't want to look inside, he spoke flippantly. Miguel would have been content in simply digging the trench and setting the fire, cremating the building and the aura that accompanied it. However, a quick peek within couldn't hurt. It may have even been therapeutic to find answers to questions that had bothered him for his entire life. They navigated around the side of the building. Miguel was surprised to see exactly how close the front of the building was to the cliff's edge. It appeared as though a strong wind could blow the teetering building right off. The church's tower protected the doors from the intense weathering shared by the rest of the building. An archaic layer of white paint still stained the wood sporadically. The doors were flanked on each side by vertical panels of stained glass, remarkably well-preserved. To the left, one portrayed an ocean vessel, which battled against harsh waves that breached the upper deck. The panel on the right-hand side was of a black-haired woman, sat atop a cloud, with only shades of blue surrounding her. Miguel had never been a religious man, thus any symbolism or theological reference would be beyond him. Though an uneasy feeling troubled Miguel as the woman seemed to stare right through him. He followed Daniel and Javier as they pushed the doors forward, the ungreased hinges squealing as they did. The majority of the church's interior was a singular room. 
A central aisle was flanked on both sides by lines of pews. The front of the room held a large stage, with a podium bolted down upon it. The rafters featured long slanted beams, which held up the roof. Intermittently placed along the rows of seating, tall windows casted sunbeams which illuminated specks of floating dust. The floor creaked as the men moved across it, threatening to give way with each step. At the end of the aisle, a time-worn spiral staircase stood winding upwards into the attic. There was a silence between the men, as if the church demanded it. Spoken word felt like sacrilege, an offense to the cedar angels that were carved into the pillars lining the aisle. Miguel felt drawn to the staircase, like a moth enticed to a flame, who, similarly, had little understanding as to why he moved robotically toward it. He left behind the nervous ramblings of a Javier, who doubted the staircase's strength. His confidence had melted away under the intense scrutiny of the church's atmosphere. Miguel also felt anxious, though not about the stairs' sturdiness, but rather forsaking the call of the bell. The voices of his co-workers fell suddenly silent as he rounded the last step. What he saw caused a brief moment of clarity, of knowledge, a moment of knowing that something was wrong about his surroundings, a challenge to his logical reality. He saw a girl, no more than seven years old, stood beside the bell. She wore a brightly colored and antique shawl made of pristinely produced llama wool and an intricate skirt crafted from animal hide bedazzled with gemstones. Her shoulder-length ebon hair blew lightly from an ajar window behind her as she motioned him over. To Miguel's surprise, his initial reaction was not of astonishment or disbelief of this girl, but rather of compliance. He shuffled gingerly forward and took her outreached hand. She led him to the grand window overlooking the valley. The valley was Miguel's home and he knew it well but he had never witnessed it from such perspective before. The breathtaking view unfolded before him. Lush, undulating foothills draped in dense foliage hugged the landscape. They embraced the valley, sheltering the river that snaked through, carving a majestic fjord. The river sustained Miguel's quaint village, which, the more Miguel stared, seemed different. The lone radio tower that dwelled upon the northern high point was gone. The battered vehicles that traversed the streets were replaced with horse-drawn carriages. Thatch and wood replaced tin and concrete buildings, and more prominently, a smoke arose from them. In what seemed to be the blink of an eye, the town had been engulfed in a fuming wildfire. The longer Miguel watched, the quicker the fire spread. Men on horseback dressed in colorful chainmail garb carried torches, marauding to the symphony of gunshots which echoed loudly enough for Miguel to hear. He then felt the hair on his arm prickle as an ear-piercing scream bellowed through the wood below him. Stumbling backwards, Miguel moved away from the girl, who stared impartially. Miguel practically crawled to the top of the staircase. In the midst of taking his first step down, three ear-piercing bells tolled behind him. He turned back to find that the girl who now held the bell rope, had changed. Her dress was now mangled and ripped. 
The gemstones had been torn from her skirt, and her wool shawl was ragged, while her hair clung in matted clumps of mud. Her face was almost unrecognizable, left desecrated and disfigured by small lumps which marred her entire body. Yet, her eyes remained unsettlingly apathetic. Miguel's command over his legs returned and instinctively moved away from the feminine specter. He strained his eyes to remain on the girl, despite her inanimate body. So focused was he on her that his foot missed the first stair entirely. A brief rush of dread overcame Miguel as he felt his stomach drop as he began to fall backward. A painful sensation ripped through his wrist and arm as he tumbled down, snapping off pieces of the wooden guardrail. He landed, face down, upon the hard cedar floor, which now had a small crimson stain where his nose met floor. He lifted his aching head, now facing the aisle. Every pew in the church was now occupied, along with most of the floor space. Those in the pews faced the stage. They were also plagued by whatever the girl had, the back of their necks and arms polluted by the aching red lumps some leaking revoltingly. On the stage stood a few men, outfitted in the same apparel that the men on horseback in the valley had worn. Flintlock pistols hung clumsily off their belts, and red feathers poked out from their metal helms. Beside them were three hanging bodies, which swayed back and forth slightly. Their heads were covered in burlap sacks, but Miguel recognized the outfits of each of the men from his journey up. Miguel moved forward unsteadily, nearly tripping over a body in front of him. A weak pair of hands pushed him away. He looked down to see an older woman holding a younger boy in her arms. Winding teardrops slid precariously down her face, navigating around the bumps that also adorned her face. He knelt beside the woman, watching the boy's chest scarcely rise and fall until it failed to rise again. A bell reverberated through the church from upstairs as his eyes slid back. Miguel shakily rose to his feet again, scanning the room. Seemingly in every corner of the room resided pain and suffering. The room was illuminated by candlelight. The sunbeams that had pierced the windows had been replaced by a duller moonlight. Another bell tolled as one of the armored men on stage fired his flintlock into the crowd, resulting in a conglomerate of woeful cries. Miguel imagined the wicked laughter played over pained moaning matched the auditory landscape of hell. The cacophony of pained wails distracted Miguel, so much so that he didn't feel the breeze run along his back. He looked down upon his own body, feeling suddenly different. He also now wore a flimsy wool tunic. The skin on his arms, and soon his whole body, began to grow irritated and red as the infection grew, the inflammatory symptoms of the clergy. Panicked, he pushed his way through the crowd. Most barely strong enough to stand, immediately fell by the wayside. The ironclad men who stood upon the stage, upon spotting Miguel, raised their weapons. Despite his suddenly lethargic body, Miguel gathered enough strength to leap out one of the moonlit windows. As the glass shattered, seemingly so did the illusion within the church. A deafening silence permeated the night. The gunshot Miguel expected to hear never came, 
and upon analyzing his skin discovered the lumps had vanished as well, and in places had been replaced with deep slashes. The sight of blood steadily flowing jolted him back to reality. The sounds of the jungle returned, carried in by the breeze, aggravating his gouged skin. Peering through the shattered window, he saw the church devoid of people, suffering, or threats. He knew Raoul, Javier, and Daniel were gone, oblivious to whether or not their souls still resided in the church's temporal purgatory. He took account of his immediate surroundings, perhaps by happenstance, or possibly fate. He landed only a few feet from the supplies that they had dropped off, including the jerry can. He doused the rotting exterior of the church with methane-induced holy water in the hope of incinerating the evil within. He knelt beside the building, head bowed, and spoke in a whisper, Le muerto no es el final. He raised the lit match to the gasoline-covered building. He watched through the windows as the fire spread within. The pillars crumbled and pews broke apart. Miguel dragged himself to the front of the building, which was in the waning moments of its supervision of his village. The flames weakened the beams which supported the roof, causing the structure to crumble inward. Miguel pulled himself away as the smoke billowed out the windows. He glanced upward ever so briefly and was able to notice the girl standing on the second floor, hand still gripping the bell rope. He watched the fire spread to her worn clothes, engulfing her form. Yet, before the flame reached her face, Miguel could see a faint smile cross her visage as she was consumed. The church's bell released a final, singular chime which echoed through the valley as the roof collapsed entirely and her ashes ascended into the moonlit sky.